This hearing of the United States Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Uh, I want to thank our witnesses for appearing here today to discuss recent events in the Middle East and the implications uh, that they have for United States policy, which are significant. Since the end of the Second War, the Second World War, the Middle East has been dominated by intractable, excuse me, intractable Arab-Israeli conflict. Today, however, much has changed. Former rivals have increasingly reached across the table to address the shared challenges posed by Iran, by radical extremism, by COVID-19, by struggling economies, and by other issues that they have. The regional dynamics have been further shaped by growing Chinese entanglement, Russian intervention, and regional responses to an expansionist Turkish foreign policy that is increasingly aligned with Russia. The United States' interests have not changed, namely regional stability, preventing terrorist threats against the United States, preserving stable international markets, and fostering governments that address the needs of their citizens. The historic signing of the Abraham Accords is a defining moment. It cannot be uh, more important than it was, and has the potential to fundamentally improve the security, economic, and diplomatic environment in the Middle East. Israel took the important step of suspending plans to annex portions of the West Bank, which I hope will reinvigorate uh, substantive engagement with the, from the uh, Palestinian people. The Accords also have positive implications for Iran policy. For years, the Arab-Israeli conflict created regional discord that Iran used to press to its advantage. Iran's aggressive terrorist agenda has created this opportunity for Arab countries to publicly cooperate with Israel. It is my hope that other countries will normalize ties with Israel. Indeed, I'm not alone in this. Much talk in this city uh, of uh, exactly that takes place every day. Additionally, the Accords have clear ramifications for regional security. Any potential arms sales must continue, congr uh, con continue congressional consultations on meeting our obligation to retain Israel's qualitative military edge and satisfying the other requirements of the Arms Export Control Act. Let me be clear. The signing of the Abraham Accords did not occur by happenstance. These events were specifically enabled by the Trump administration's exit from the flawed JCPOA, its maximum pressure against the Iran regime, and the clear signals the administration's plan for Middle East peace sent to the region. Anyone who suggests that the U.S. should re-enter the nuclear deal with Iran is misguided at best, as that would only serve to isolate our, our ally Israel, alienate our Gulf partners, and once again fund uh, Iran's terror activities, and most importantly, uh, conduct uh, a weak-kneed retreat from the hard-fought gains that we have made and telegraph to our enemies and our allies alike a weakness sure to embolden Iran to move aggressively, uh, to uh, more aggressively pursue its uh, malign activities and thus, at the end of the day, hurt us badly. Our Iran policy must look forward, 
I applaud the reimposition of sanctions in the executive order this week implementing CATSA and authorizing sanctions against those who would transfer arms to Iran. Only continued economic and regional isolation have the potential to bring Iran uh, to, to the negotiating table. Turning to our counterterrorism efforts, we have broken the Islamic State's grip on Iraq and Syria. According to our military commanders, success against the Islamic State has led to a reduction in U.S. troops, resulting from our confidence in local forces' ability to operate with reduced levels of U.S. support. As the Department of Defense reduces its missions in the Middle East, it's incumbent on the State Department to build a lasting peace through disarmament, demobilization, and reintegration efforts. These efforts tied to necessary reforms to reduce corruption and improve governance will ensure lasting stability. In Syria, we continue to face one of the world's worst humanitarian catastrophes and major contributor to, in, to regional instability. As we impose sanctions on the Assad regime authorized by the uh, Caesar Syria Civilian Protection Act, we must continue the diplomatic and UN process towards a ceasefire, supporting the Constitutional Committee and free and fair elections. We must not repeat the mistakes of the previous administration or inaction open the door to Russian intervention and let the civil war rage unabated. In Lebanon, we see the results of a corrupt patronage system and broken political process that opens the door to deep Iranian influence. Lebanon is a nation on the brink of collapse, yet remains an important link in, to regional stability. I remain skeptical of Lebanon's ability to form a new government free from corruption of its political allies. Across the Middle East, there are unique opportunities to improve the region through continued normalization efforts, linking economies, joining security efforts, and continued pressure on Iran. These are real possibilities that were unthinkable just a few short years ago and maybe once in a generation opportunities. I look forward to hearing the witnesses' uh, testimony on these and uh, related matters. With that, Senator Menendez. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. And uh, thank you to our witnesses, uh, both whom have spent decades in service to our country. The scope of this hearing could keep us here for days. Israel's changing diplomatic fortunes, Lebanon reeling with decades of malfeasance and a deadly explosion, Yemen facing the worst humanitarian crisis in the world, but I'll try to do my best to stay focused. While we've seen some recent positive developments over the course of the past four years, however, the Trump administration has only served, in my view, to create more chaos and uncertainty about our policies in the Middle East. Showering autocrats with praise, and at least according to the president, saving one from Congress in the wake of ordering the slaughter of an American resident. Drawing down and now redeploying troops to Syria, prioritizing arms sales and unilateral sanctions over the hard work of diligent diplomacy and strategic development. Today's hearing implies a Middle East changing for the better for U.S. interests and values, and in some ways that is true. I applaud the administration for building on years of cooperation between Israel and some of its Arab Gulf neighbors. I think we can all agree that more regional cooperation serves the interests of all the people in the region and of the United States as well. But while we should celebrate these historical achievements, 
Let's not overlook the fact that Israel's core security issues remain unresolved, and it is still contending with threats from Hamas and Hezbollah nearly on a daily basis. Indeed, we have a responsibility to look beyond the headlines and into the details, particularly when it comes to peace declarations that come with the expectations and perhaps even the promise of significant arms sales. Let me be clear. Congress's role in arms sales is not something that I see changing anytime soon to any country, in any region, and while some things change, others stay the same, and in some cases, get worse. And in fact, Mr. Chairman, I think there can be little doubt that with Iran, we are worse off now than we were four years ago. Now, to be clear, I bear no sentimentality about the JCPOA, but as one who has worked for decades helping to build a careful, calibrated, and critically and internationally supported sanctions regime to constrain Iran, I am seriously concerned that this administration has completely lost sight of how to achieve even its own goals, let alone safeguard our, nation, our national security. Over the past four years, Iran has increased its enrichment level and stockpile of enriched uranium as well as advanced missile systems. It has continued its support for malign proxy actors throughout the region, even in the wake of the killing of Qassam Soleimani and a declaration of deterrence restored, quote, against Iran, CENTCOM Commander General McKenzie said recently that, quote, the level of attacks on U.S. troops in Iraq from Iran-based militias have been higher. So I ask you, is this your definition of deterrence restored? This administration refuses to acknowledge what those of us who have worked this file know. We cannot confront Iran alone. Indeed, we cannot achieve any of our policy goals in the Middle East or elsewhere alone. But this administration has so alienated our allies and partners that Russia and China didn't even need to use their vetoes at the UN Security Council, where the US embarrassingly could muster only one vote in support of reimposing the arms embargo against Iran. How can you honestly say that in this context Sanctions have been snapped back. When our European allies and the Secretary General himself questioned the legitimacy of U.S. claims, and while the Secretary rails against our historical partners, China and Russia are increasing their influence not just in the region economically and militarily, but at international fora as well, where previous administrations have been effective in advancing our nation's interests. The executive order announced money could, uh, Monday could have been executed months ago and will likely have no tangible impact on Iran's capacities. These announcements are simply a hollow echo of American leadership that once held commanding, convening power and unquestioned global leadership, replacing it with a policy that seems to amount to talk loudly and carry no sticks. So while I intend to drill down some more during questions, I hope that you uh, can provide us some level of explanation as to how it is that you believe you are actually achieving your goals in the Middle East. And perhaps you can even shed light onto exactly what those are. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
Thank you. We'll now hear from uh, our witnesses. We'll start with the Honorable David Hale, has served as Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs since August 30th, 2018. Previously, he served as U.S. Ambassador to Pakistan and U.S. Ambassador to Lebanon. He also has uh, extensive experience on issues pertaining to, his, to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, having served as Special Envoy for the Middle East Peace from 2011 to 2013 and Deputy Special Envoy from 2009 to 2011. Uh, Under Secretary Hale. Well, good morning, Chairman Risch and Ranking Member Menendez, distinguished members of the committee. It's an honor to appear before you with Special Representative Abrams to discuss the Middle East and Iran's malign influence. America is a force for good, and we are the partner of choice for those who seek security and prosperity. It's in our national security interest to strengthen those partnerships. Nothing has done more to demonstrate a commitment to cooperation than the signing of the Abraham Accords Declaration on September 15. As President Trump observed, these agreements mark the dawn of a new Middle East and send a strong message to malign actors such as Iran that their influence is waning. Ending Iran's malign influence is the administration's top regional priority. Success will mean an independent and sovereign Iraq and Lebanon and the chance for religious minorities to thrive again. It will mean Gulf states that no longer live in fear of Iranian aggression and violence. It will mean a more secure Israel, reaping the benefits of regional cooperation. To this end, our maximum pressure campaign has constrained Iran by depriving the regime of over $70 billion in revenue. But sanctions are not solely an end unto themselves. They are merely one tool that we will deploy until the Iranian regime changes its behavior. The signing of the historic Abraham Accords, witnessed by many of you, normalizes relations between both the UAE and Bahrain with Israel, the first such agreement between Israel and an Arab country since 1994. This normalization will promote peace, security, and prosperity throughout the region. Affirmation of the Abraham Accords bolsters the administration's vision for peace. Israel will suspend declaring sovereignty over areas outlined in the vision. We urge the Palestinians to come to the negotiating table. The only path to end the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is through negotiations aimed at achieving a comprehensive and lasting peace. Lebanon faces political gridlock and economic instability, exacerbated by the horrific August 4 explosion at the port of Beirut. America has thus far provided over $19 million in essential relief, and we stand with the Lebanese people as they recover from the devastation. The tragic explosion is a symptom of the systemic problems in Lebanon, decades of mismanagement, corruption, and the repeated failure to undertake meaningful reform. When we see Lebanese leaders committed to real change, in word and deed, America and its international partners will be ready to help with the assistance needed to accomplish true reform. Hezbollah cultivates and exploits Lebanon's corrupt, anything-goes environment and undermines the interests of the Lebanese people through the accumulation of arms and destabilizing activities across the region. Before the maximum pressure campaign, Iran provided Hezbollah over $700 million of its approximately $1 billion annual budget. Our ability to constrain that funding is having an effect and we will use all available tools to hold accountable those who facilitate Hezbollah's activities. This month, we sanctioned two former Lebanese ministers for corruptly directing political and financial favors to Hezbollah, and we'll continue to press our partners across the world to designate Hezbollah as a terrorist organization. The Gulf states are critical partners in our fight against terrorism and efforts to blunt Iranian influence. We have consistently pressed our partners in parallel with, uh, to blunt, uh, in parallel with similar calls from Congress to end that rift. Our relationship with Saudi Arabia is rooted in robust security cooperation. 
It's a central component of our strategy to counter Iran and defeat extremist groups. We continue to have frank conversations with Riyadh on human rights, and we consistently tell Saudi leaders that success on the nation's reform agenda will require protection of human and especially women's rights. We support UN Special Envoy Martin Griffiths as he negotiates a lasting peace in Yemen, and we are working closely with Saudi Arabia on de-escalating violence in Yemen and welcome Riyadh's efforts to reconcile the Yemeni parties. The Houthis, armed by Iran, threaten regional security and stability through attacks against civilian targets. In Iraq, Iran-backed elements of the popular mobilization forces are an immediate challenge to Iraq's stability, and we see the Iraqi people turning against Iranian interference in Iraqi affairs. The protest movement demonstrated the Iraqi people's aspiration for democratic governance, and Mustafa al-Kadami, Iraq's new prime minister, has begun to restore Iraq's sovereignty. In Syria, our leadership of the global coalition will ensure ISIS's lasting defeat. Using the tools Congress provided in the Caesar Syria Civilian Protection Act, we've imposed over 55 sanctions on the Assad regime. In Libya, we're supporting the UN as it brings together broad Libyan participation for the Libya political dialogue, which aims to prepare for elections, establish a lasting ceasefire, and support uh, the oil sector. In surveying the region today, we have tangible opportunities to advance our objectives of peace, prosperity, and security. And our presence and relationships serve as a bulwark against efforts by Russia and China to extend their malign influence. Thank you, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you very much. Uh, we'll now hear from Elliot Abrams, uh, who is the U.S. Special Representative for Iran and Venezuela at the Department for State and currently on leave from his position as Senior Fellow for Middle Eastern Studies in the Council, uh, in the Council on Foreign Relations. Previously, he served as Deputy Assistant to the President and Deputy National Security Advisor in the U.S. Administration of President George W. Bush, where he supervised U.S. policy in the Middle East for the White House. Mr. Abrams. Thank you, Chairman Risch, Ranking Member Menendez, members of the committee. Thank you for inviting me to testify today with Under Secretary Hale and the opportunity to provide an update on our policy toward Iran. I will try to be brief, and I look forward to your questions. Our strategy to deal with the threats from Iran has two primary objectives. First, to deprive Iran, the Iranian regime of the money it needs to support its destabilizing activities. Second, to bring Iran to the negotiating table to conclude a comprehensive deal that must address four key areas. Its nuclear program, its ballistic missile development and proliferation, its support for terror groups and proxies, and its wrongful detention of US citizens. Our efforts to disrupt the regime's malicious agenda have met with real success. By any measure, we believe the Iranian regime is weaker today than when President Trump took office. The regime faces unprecedented and worsening economic and political crises. US sanctions have denied Iran more than 90% of its oil export revenue, depriving the regime access to well over $70 billion in income that could otherwise have gone to fund terror operations. The consequence of this economic pressure is a change in Iran's malign behavior, willing or not. Iran's partners and proxies, like Hezbollah and Hamas, are under austerity plans to deal with a lack of funds from Iran. And as a result, the lives of innumerable Iranians, Syrians, Iraqis, Yemenis, and other innocent civilians in the regime's crosshairs have been saved. In addition to our economic pressure, we've enlisted many partners in the effort to confront the threats from Iran. 
Since the beginning of 2019, for example, nations such as Germany, the UK, Argentina, and others have taken far-reaching actions against Hezbollah. Many other nations have now banned Mahan Air, Iran's terror airline. We are further isolating Iran by brokering the peace agreements with Israel, the UAE, and Bahrain as part of the historic Abraham Accords. There is a reason that those accords were orchestrated by the United States and signed in Washington. Nations in the Middle East have renewed confidence in the United States because we're standing up to Iran. Our negotiations with Iran have already shown dividends, and our model of how the United States ought to approach the regime, by starting from a principled position of strength, we've brought back two Americans, Shihui Wang and Michael White, back to the United States from Iranian detention. And there was no payment for them, no sanctions relief granted, no pallets of cash. We will not rest until every American wrongfully detained in Iran is freed. The fact that Americans can end up in Iran's jails to be used as political pawns is another demonstration of the regime's daily mockery of justice that Iranians know too well. Just recently, the regime brutally tortured and then shamefully executed champion wrestler Navidov Kari to send to its own people an unmistakable message of intimidation. The US is committed to holding accountable those who deny freedom and justice to the people of Iran. And later today, the United States will announce sanctions on several Iranian officials and entities, including the judge who sentenced Navid Afkari to death. I look forward, as you all do, to the day that Iranians enjoy the freedom and dignity they so deeply deserve. Uh, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Menendez, and other members of the committee, I thank you again for the opportunity to testify today. Thank you very much. Uh, we'll now enter uh, a uh, round of question. Before we do, I want to respond uh, briefly to uh, some of the remarks made by my friend and colleague, uh, the ranking member. Uh, I understand that uh, we have a different opinion of uh, what's going on in the Middle East uh, as a result of this administration's activities. But I want to drill down very, very specifically uh, on the outside chance that uh, the Iranians are monitoring this. Uh, I want to say clearly Deterrence has been restored. Soleimani is dead. His replacement is a weak, weak substitute for Soleimani. He does not have the influence and he does not have the abilities to conduct uh, the kind of warfare that Soleimani did. Since that happened, there have been no bombings of oil facilities as they did uh, prior, as Iran did prior to that. There's been no sabotaging of oil tankers, which they did prior to that. There's been no shooting down of our drones. Most importantly, what's happening on the ground in Iraq has changed dramatically. I've uh, spoken directly with the military commanders on the ground. I've spoken with the policymakers in the administration, and uh, they are laser focused on this. There's been no American killed. Let there be no mistake, Iran. If you wind up killing Americans in Iraq, there will be serious, serious consequences. That message was transmitted when Soleimani was taken out and killed, there will be consequences for that. So any suggestion that somehow we're backing away from that, any suggestion that some, somehow we are weakening on that, 
Any suggestion that the military commanders on the ground are not dedicated to protecting American troops and to do what is necessary if indeed uh, Iraqi uh, attacks take the life of, uh, of American uh, citizens, uh, American soldiers, American men and women in Iraq, there will be serious, serious consequences. What happened when Soleimani was taken out was a clear message. Iran, listen to that message because it is meant to transmit what American determination is in uh, Iraq, on the ground in Iraq. With that, we'll go to a, a series of questions and I'll uh, turn it over to the ranking member. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> Representative Abrams, do you dispute what CENTCOM Commander General McKenzie said when he said the level of attacks on U.S. troops in Iraq from Iran-backed militias have been higher? Um, higher than when? I guess that's the question, Senator. Right now, um, we're seeing Iran... Well, you, what, have you talked to General McKenzie in terms of his statement? I talked to General McKenzie yesterday about uh -huh. what's going on in Iraq. Right. And so did you dispute his statement with him? I don't dis dispute the statement. I think it's a question of comparisons. Okay. Uh, Ambassador Hale, uh, the Foreign Relations Committee has statutory authority over reviewing and approving arms sales, which are a critical tool of U.S. foreign policy that has to be considered in a wide context. Our interests, the recipient country's needs and interests, their human rights record, and of course, how they have treated U.S. origin weapons in the past. We've seen a lot of conflicting reporting and no clear answers regarding the sale of F-35 to the United Arab Emirates. So let me ask, what precisely has the U.S. agreed to in terms of selling F-35 aircraft to the UAE? Uh, thank you for the question, uh, Senator. We uh, are not at a point now where we have something to bring to the Senate, uh, but we understand fully our obligations to notify Congress and make sure that we've met all of the requirements that exist. So you're having conversations about sales of F-35s to the UAE? We're having consultations about their security needs and what would it take in order to improve their security. And have they suggested to you how many and what timeline of delivery? No, not to my knowledge. Uh, has a formal letter of request been received by the UAE for these aircraft? I don't know of any such letter. Oh, could you check and get back to the country? Absolutely. Um, well, uh, what specific threats to the UAE does the F-35 address that can't be met by existing weapons systems and alternative sales? I'm not an expert on various weapon systems. I, what I would say is that, um, you know, that's subject to our experts uh, to engage on. Above all, it's important that we preserve Israel's QME, but also meet the legitimate security and defense needs of our partners in the Gulf. So let's talk about what you clearly do know, which is the qualitative military edge that exists in law for Israel. I don't see how anyone can reasonably assert that a sale of F-35 aircraft uh, will in fact not reduce Israel's qualitative military edge based on the simple fact that right now Israel is the only country throughout the Middle East that has that aircraft. So how are you going to deal with U.S. law as it relates to not reducing Israel's qualitative military edge? Well, we consult with the Israelis uh, on any sale prior to uh, proceeding with it. 
once we've determined a particular course of action. And then I know that the Congress will also evaluate whether or not any proposed sale meets the standard of uh, preserving QME. Well, uh, let me just say that, with all due respect, I'm a big fan of consulting with the Israelis, but I'm talking about United States law. United States law is not subject to a foreign power deciding when it will be waived. So again, I ask you, how is it that you will deal with U.S. law as it relates to the qualitative military edge that U.S. law commits to the U.S.-Israel relationship? Well, the same way we do it all the time. I and mean, we have a large group of uh, people at the Pentagon and at the State Department who evaluate based on technical criteria and assessments of security and, and what it is that the Israelis have and what it is that our partners need. And they will make a recommendation to the Secretary of State. And then we have a consultative process with Israel. It occurs every year. There's an executive session in which it's a closed session in which we talk about these things. Well, and of course, we bring due, all of this to Congress. With, with all due respect, it's, it's, it's a rather, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that if Israel is the only country in the Middle East that has F-35s, that selling it to someone else no longer produces that qualitative military edge in the air. Uh, Representative Abrams, uh, uh, I have to disagree with much of your characterization of the approach towards Iran. Continuing the, US, uh, the UN arms embargo against Iran has been a bipartisan goal of Congress and one of our European allies. However, uh, the US efforts to renew the arms embargo of the Security Council were ineffective and definitely a how-to lesson in terrible diplomacy. Uh, how is it possible that the United States failed so utterly and completely to build international support for our position that a number of allies even share? It's a good question, Senator, uh, about the behavior of the EU3, in my view, all of whom told us privately that they thought the UN embargo should be extended, but they did not take any action to get it extended. Uh, we saw no, we saw no activity on their part in the United Nations, and we therefore took the one step that we were able to take unilaterally, which was snapback. Well, I know, but a snapback when, in fact, uh, I don't know how you can sustain an arms embargo if the international community, including our European allies, refuse to enforce it. Well, first, the EU has its own arms embargo, which extends another three years. Second, you know, uh, this is really true of all sanctions on Iran. Ultimately, the decisions are not made in foreign ministries about complying with U.S. sanctions. They're made by 10,000 or 100,000 individuals, company officers, company lawyers, bankers, financiers, who look at these sanctions and say, this is too dangerous. We're not going to do it. We heard this argument in 2018 that unilateral American sanctions won't work, but they do work. Well, I'll just close by saying, are unilateral sanctions always clearly have a value? But the reason we created an international coalition originally that, first of all, brought Iran to the negotiating table was the internationalization of our sanctions regime. There is no question that the dissipation of that internationalization of the sanctions regime has less consequences on Iran. Iran today is more advanced than it was in its nuclear program than before. That is, um, I think, a pretty much undisputed fact, and that is concerning. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Menendez. Uh, we, ha <clears throat> we have a number of people that are online uh, with us, and uh, 
this is always uh, awkward going through this, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna use seniority as opposed to uh, uh, first come, first serve, because it's easier to do. The next one I have in seniority on the Republican side, so I have uh, Senator Gardner, who I'm told is with us online. Senator Gardner, are you with us? Senator Rich, I will defer to Senator Romney, I believe, who's, who came in before me. Uh, Senator Gardner hasn't responded, so Senator Romney, uh, you're up. Yes, yep. uh, I hope you can hear me, uh, Mr. Chairman. I appreciate this opportunity to speak with uh, uh, these individuals about this critical part, part of the world. Uh, Mr. Abrams, um, uh, how does our support for the Lebanese Armed Forces advance our strategic interests in that country? I know we uh, continue to support, support the Lebanese Armed Forces. We're very concerned about stability there. want to make sure that we do not see a resurgence of strength on the part of Hezbollah. Uh, and uh, and, and I'm, I, for one, uh, believe that, that our support of the Lebanese Armed Forces uh, advances uh, uh, our, uh, the position of our friends there and deters the, the growth of Hezbollah influence. But I'm interested in your, uh, your informed uh, opinion. I would ask, Senator, um, that Undersecretary Hale take that question as Undersecretary first and as a former ambassador to Lebanon. Thank you. Um, thank you, Senator, and thank you for your support for that program. It's of critical importance to our strategy to counter Hezbollah um, and Iranian uh, malign influence in Lebanon. Uh, we have been supporting the Lebanese army for a number of years. Uh, our military experts believe that it has paid off. Uh, the army is far more capable today than it was when we began. Uh, to do the job of protecting Lebanon's borders um, and supporting UNIFIL in uh, trying to make sure that the South is as quiet as it can be. Um, we will continue this program. We believe that the Army has shown uh, that it is capable of those tasks and that it has a sterling end-user record. Uh, the equipment that we provide is all accounted for. Uh, if we were not building up the uh, security arm of the state of Lebanon, uh, Hezbollah would have even further ability to uh, extend its sway over Lebanon. There would be no alternative to point to for the Lebanese people as the, uh, as the provider of security, the legitimate provider of security, which is the army and not a militia. Thank you, Senator. Thank you. Ambassador Hale, uh, let me ask also, with regards to the reports that uh, China was going to invest some $400 billion in Iran, and I presume that would have been on a loan basis, uh, but clearly, uh, China has its eyes on Iran and on the Middle East. Uh, do you have a sense of what their uh, objectives are in the Middle East, and particularly with regards to Iran, uh, what their strategy appears to be, and how is it that we might want to counter uh, what they're doing and whether we're already taking steps to do so? Uh, thanks, Senator. Uh, if you'll allow, I I'll uh, try to reply to that one. We saw the announcement of the $400 billion uh, trade deal. Um, a 25-year deal, the annual rate would be 10 times the current level of trade between China and Iran, which is really unrealistic. So I think it's, that number is more of an announcement than it is a reality. We are concerned about China's uh, presence in the Middle East. Uh, we're concerned about the potential for Chinese arms sales, not only to Iran, but to other countries in the Middle East. China's interests, of course, um, start with uh, oil. Uh, China's a big oil importer, and they're obviously trying to uh, make sure they get the oil supplies that they're going to need, but they also want political influence. 
so we're, we are watching that very carefully. And in all of the countries that are friends of ours, in, including Israel, we have conversations about uh, the need to be very careful about uh, the level of Chinese involvement, because the economic involvement uh, very frequently becomes uh, a source of difficulty, uh, both economically and politically, for the countries that permit it. Thank you. Uh, let me ask one more question, and that's with regards to Iraq. Um, I happen to be, I think, one of many who believe that, that Iraq is uh, a critical to our long-term interests in the Middle East, to stability in the Middle East, uh, and can be a, uh, an example of the potential of a democratically elected government. Um, but it's obviously in a, uh, in a fragile uh, uh, position, given its, uh, its neighbors. And, uh, and I, I do believe that, that historically our commitment of troops uh, in Iraq has helped uh, provide stability, uh, obviously helped uh, expel ISIS from territory in Iraq. Uh, but I would anticipate that, that ongoing troop presence is important to uh, continue to provide those same, uh, those same benefits. Um, uh, our American uh, troop uh, commitments there remaining critical to the objectives we have in Iraq, and and if so, why do we continue to reduce that level? And to what level do you anticipate uh, we should or should not uh, go? Thank you, Senator. Um, I agree that the U.S. troop presence in Iraq is critical to achieving our goals. Um, they are, as you described them, we're trying to increase the capacity and the resiliency of Iraqi security forces. We want to counter the instability and violence spewed by not just ISIS, but Iranian-backed uh, militias that were referenced earlier. Um, and we are very focused on that. I would defer to the, our military colleagues in defining how many troops are required in order to continue to perform those objectives. Um, there is a transformation underway in Iraq. Uh, there's a strong popular demand for reform. And uh, we were talking to the new Iraqi prime minister who met with President Trump just a couple weeks ago here in Washington in the context of a strategic dialogue on how he's going to uh, address those uh, urgent reform needs, which we agree on uh, are, are, uh, are essential uh, to Iraq's stability. Uh, we also look to this leadership to protect our diplomatic and military uh, facilities uh, in Iraq. Uh, so we do not have to act on our own, although we will, as I think Chairman Risch so eloquently put it earlier. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'll return the time to you. Thank you very much, Senator Romney. Uh, I now have uh, indication Senator Cardin is on the line. Senator Cardin, are you with us? I'm with you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you very much. And let me thank both of our, both of our witnesses. Uh, first, Mr. Abrams, let me, let me just qualify this by saying I have the deep respect for your service to our country. You have uh, really served our nation well. But I strongly disagree with your assessment as to where we are in Iran by the U.S. policy that has isolated us from our allies. And let me just give you the background and then I really want to get your response to this. Uh, my assessment is that the maximum pressure campaign has been to isolate the United States. And we look at Iran today and where they are, uh, without our allies' support, you indicate that our sanctions are working because we have companies that will respond to the U.S. sanctions. And, and I acknowledge that. But then you said that our traditional allies wanted to help us in the United Nations, but they didn't vote with us. The reality is that we've all had conversations with our European allies, our traditional allies. 
And yes, they recognize Iran as a as a serious as a real threat, but they are absolutely against what the U.S. did in pulling out of the Iran nuclear agreement, and they're taking steps to counter what the United States has done in regards to the effect of sanctions against Iran, particularly now that we've announced that we're reopposing our sanctions. And then you talk about what China is doing. The United States has been isolated in its global politics so that China can be bolder in reaching out to Iran than they would before when we had the unity of Europe. So we're isolating America's effectiveness in global politics, and that's affecting how well we can isolate Iran. We have legitimated Iran in some quarters because of what we've done in violating and pulling out of the Iran nuclear agreement. So when I look at Iran today, I see a very dangerous country. And you know, uh, what Senator Menendez said is absolutely right. There is strong bipartisan support to take effective action to isolate Iran and to minimize their ability to cause the type of damage that they do and to make sure they never become a nuclear weapons state. But we do that by working with our allies and this administration has isolated it. Now I know your background and I have a hard time believing that you really believe America is stronger when we act by ourselves and not with our allies. Tell me how we are stronger when America is alone rather than having our traditional allies on our side as we combat Iran. Thank you, Senator. Um, sometimes we have to be alone. <clears throat> we have been alone about 40 times in the United Nations, for example, in defense of Israel, uh, literally alone, and that was the right thing to do in those votes. Uh, we are trying to maintain this coalition, uh, as, as you rightly say. Uh, that's a strong coalition, both domestically here and in Europe. I'll give you an example. This week, two days ago, Tuesday, uh, there was a vote in the IAEA General Conference. Iran presented itself to be the chairman of the Committee of the Whole. Um, and it, it was defeated in a landslide. No other country voted for it because countries do recognize, uh, as, as the Senate does and as this committee does, the danger that Iran presents. We're in continuing conversations with the British, the French, and the Germans. We did have one very big disagreement, which was about the JCPOA, <clears throat> which we regard as a very Flawed. I'm going to just interrupt you for one yep. second. We've had more than one disagreement with our traditional allies. Uh, look at some of our trade policies. Look at our climate uh, positions. It's not just Iran. We've had major disagreements with our traditional allies. On NATO, we've had disagreements with our traditional allies. And you're mentioning the IAEA. The only reason we had those actions is because of the nuclear agreement. In this case, the, what happened was that Iran presented itself to be chairman of the Committee of the Whole, and it was defeated in a landslide. This is unrelated to the, to the JCPOA. On the question of Iran, I think there's very broad agreement within what I'd call the Western Alliance. Uh, I've been in touch with British, French, and German colleagues in the last few days, and it's clear to them as it is clear to us that we need to work together in the months and years ahead to deal with this terrible problem of Iran, where we had a deep disagreement was, should we value retaining the JCPOA and allowing the arms embargo to go away, or should we say, no, 
the arms embargo has to stay. Uh, and on that one, I think, uh, as you know, we were right. The arms embargo is, is critical, and the EU3 really made a mistake here in thinking that they could allow it to disappear. My last point, I know I've run out of time, is that if we were still in the Iran nuclear agreement, our allies would have been with us at the United Nations on this vote. The only reason they're not with us is because of the action taken by the United States in withdrawing from the nuclear agreement. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Cardin. Uh, we will now go to next one I have online on my list is Senator Young, who's with us online, I believe. Senator Young. If not, uh, we'll try Senator Purdue. The next one I have on uh, my list, uh, we will now go to Senator Shaheen, who's here in person. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to both of you for your service to the country and for being here today. I was pleased to see this week that Britain agreed to renew information sharing with the United States with respect to bringing a case against the two terrorists known as the Beatles, who are suspected of being responsible for the killing of Americans, James Foley, Peter Kosig, uh, Stephen Sotloff, and Caitlin Mueller. I wonder if you, the goal is to bring those two terrorists back to the United States, to try them in a civilian court, to get justice for the families, and to send a signal to the rest of the world. Can you, Under Secretary Hale, speak to the message that that sends to terrorists around the world if we are able to do that? Yes, it would be, I think, a very powerful message, uh, Senator, that uh, we will be relentless in pursuing justice on behalf of American citizens um, who have been uh, killed or uh, injured in any way by terrorist organizations. We simply will not rest until we are able to see justice done. Thank you. And can you tell me, is the State Department supportive of that effort? Are Absolutely. you working with the Attorney General? Yes, uh, Senator. Thank you. Um, last month, the UN counter, UN's counterterrorism chief confirmed that 10,000 ISIS fighters remain active. Obviously, the Beatles were ISIS fighters. Um, and that attacks have significantly increased. We also have heard from Ambassador Jim Jeffrey, who is the State Department's envoy expressing concern over ISIS regroupings and attacks. So I wonder if you can speak to um, the reason we sent additional troops into Syria. Um, they were speaking with respect to ISIS presence in Syria. I had a chance to visit Syria in 2018. I saw the difference that our presence in Northeast Syria made uh, to the Syrians, to maintaining stability in northeast Syria, preventing the Russians and the Iranians from coming in, the Turks from coming in, and the president precipitously withdraw, withdrew those troops. Now we are sending troops back in to northeast Syria. Can you speak to why we're doing that? Well, we've, we've had a continual presence. There's been a small adjustment downward, uh, relatively minor, from I think 1,000 to 800 soldiers. Um, again, I, I defer to my military colleagues on assessing just who they need on the ground to uh, complete the mission. Uh, but you know from your travel and, and your close work on this um, that while we've made great progress, we have not achieved our success yet in the enduring defeat of ISIS uh, in Syria. 
Um, we will continue to work with the Turks. We will continue to deconflict with the Russians. Um, job's not yet done. Well, I appreciate your saying that because we've heard from a number of officials, including the president, that we have defeated ISIS in the Middle East. So you would, you would disagree with that statement. You believe that we still have work to do with respect to ISIS. We've made tremendous progress, and we are very close to completing the task, but the task is not yet done. Thank you. Um, Representative Abrams, I I'm concerned that the administration has really lost the focus on our policy towards Iran. And I would, I share the concerns that you've heard from some of my colleagues here about um, our ability to contain Iran's nuclear ambitions without the JCPOA. So can you talk about just um, what's most important as we think about how we address Iran's malign activities across the Middle East? What are we most focused on? And how do we engage the international community, as Senator Cardin has suggested we need to do in order to be successful? Thank you, Senator. I, I would say two things. <clears throat> we're focused on Iran's uh, nuclear program, and we're focused on its uh, malign activities in the, in the region, support for terrorism, uh, primarily its activities in Yemen, in Iraq, in Lebanon. Um, you know, the, our view of the JCPOA, which, uh, which some members of the committee shared when it was first introduced, is that it is really not uh, a permanent obstacle for the Iranian nuclear program. It almost paves the way because, you know, there are sunsets at five years first. No, I appreciate that. I voted for it. Uh, so I understand the limitations that it had. However, it kept Iran from getting a nuclear weapon and we don't have those same constraints today. Well, uh, in our view, the path ahead should be to negotiate a comprehensive agreement that is a permanent block for Iran getting a nuclear weapon. Uh, and are we trying, excuse me for interrupting, but I'm about uh, to run out of time. Are we, what are we doing to bring Iran to the negotiating table? And what um, hope do we have that that might happen sometime in the near future? Obviously, Iran doesn't want to do it, doesn't want to give up the nuclear program, doesn't want to give up the support for terrorism. So in our view, the only way to get them to do it is what we call a maximum pressure campaign. And the, if you look at the Iranian economy with even now, this week, the real falling to an all-time low. Today, 290,000 to the dollar, which is an all-time low. Um, we think that with that pressure, once our election is over, they will come to the negotiating table. Thank you. Mr. Chairman, can I have another minute to ask a question about Go Lebanon? Ahead. Yeah. Um, Under Secretary Hale, I, I know you understand what's happening in Lebanon, um, having served there. But one of the things that I have been concerned about is as we look at the challenges facing Lebanon, we were very quick to respond to the humanitarian situation after the explosion. But now we have backed off somewhat. China's already offered a billion dollars to rebuild the port there. Russia's um, in there angling for more um, influence for warm water ports south of Tartus. Um, can you speak to what more we're doing to try and help the Lebanese people who are really struggling at this time? 
As I mentioned in my opening statement, we have contributed $19 million to the immediate humanitarian crisis. The billion with a B or million? Million, M with a million. We are, I believe, the largest or maybe second largest donor uh, in response to this crisis. And over the years, we have provided uh, $10 billion in support to Lebanon, uh, both to the security services on the one hand and to private uh, NGOs on the other for economic development and humanitarian support. No, no one else has contributed as much uh, foreign assistance as we have. I have little faith that the Chinese will make good on these kinds of promises. I was in Beirut days after the explosion. I met with all of the leaders. I met with a wide sector of uh, activists and protesters, uh, norm, normal common people. Uh, the level of anger is quite high, directed toward the political elite and their corruption. Uh, so our focus is on that and getting in place uh, a government that's going to be actually responsive to the needs of the people. And if that occurs and they're committed and acting upon reform, that will unlock our support and the support of the French and other donors for several, I think, $21 billion that has been put on the shelf of IMF, World Bank, and uh, so-called CEDAR money, which is uh, bilateral assistance. That can all be unlocked if the Lebanese leadership make the right decisions and break from the past. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, uh, Senator Sheen. I, uh, that, that's a good line of questioning. I think everybody uh, is concerned about that situation in Lebanon. I, I don't know what the path forward is there, what it, where it's going to take everyone, but it is a serious, serious situation. Uh, do I have any more members of the, uh, of the majority on, online? Okay, if not... Uh, Next one I have on the list that told me they're online is Senator Udall. Senator Udall, are you with us? Ah, you're not online. That doesn't look like online, but uh, could be. Welcome, Senator Udall. The floor is yours. Big enough room, you should be able to find a chair, Senator Udall. <clears throat> Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman, for, uh, for you and Senator Menendez calling this hearing. And I think very important subjects we're talking about today in the Middle East. You know, after 20 years of uninterrupted war, the forever wars in the Middle East continue. Contrary to the Trump administration's pronouncements, we are even more entrenched in the region than before and no closer to revoking the 2001 AUMF being used to justify wars that Congress never authorized. Just last week, instead of drawing down from a war in Syria that no one in Congress voted for, the administration sent more troops to a country where no strategic U.S. interest exists and threats to American forces are everywhere. Maximum pressure is an abject failure, and I agree with Senator Cardin on that. It has traded an agreement that placed limits on Iranian enrichment for bluster, increased enrichment, and threats of war, all enacted out of spite for the previous administration's progress. Let's be clear, the United States left the Iran nuclear agreement and now wants to be the arbiter of how it's enforced. That is ludicrous, and as a result, the U.S. is now more isolated around the world. 
I want to reaffirm that neither, and this question is directed to both witnesses, that neither the 2001 nor 2002 AUMF give this president the authority to go to war or to enter into any hostilities with Iran. Iran has responded to the maximum pressure uh, campaign by increasing its nuclear activities and our allies are rejecting our approach. What is the next step? Do you expect the Iranian regime to collapse or give up? Or should the American people prep for more con unconstitutional attacks on Iran that might precipitate a new war? <clears throat> Thanks, Senator. Um, the next step, we hope, would be a comprehensive negotiation. Hey, should I direct uh, the Yemen question at Mr. Abram? I do both witnesses. Uh, well, I'll start. Um, that is, that's the goal. The goal of the maximum pressure campaign is to deny Iran the money with, with which the regime is doing the many things to which all of us object, and to get them to the table to negotiate a comprehensive agreement that would deal with the nuclear program and its conduct in the region. Mr. Hale. Well, I might address your question about the, uh, the use of AUMF. Uh, the administration has not to date interpreted uh, the 2002 AUMF as authorizing military force against Iran, uh, except as may be necessary and appropriate to promote the stability in Iraq and address terrorist threats emanating there. Mr. Abram, you have a lot of experience in Latin America with coups, authoritarians, and failed democratic transitions of power. Politico's morning newsletter asks a question, is the United States turning into a banana republic under President Trump? President Trump yesterday said, and I quote, well, we're going to have to see what happens. You know that I've been complaining very strongly about the ballots, and the ballots are a disaster. Let's get rid of the ballots and we'll have a very peaceful, and there won't be a transfer, frankly. There would be a, a continuation. The ballots are out of control. You know it, and, you, and who knows it better than, than uh, anybody else? The Democrats know it better than anybody else. End quote. That's the President of the United States talking about the election. Senator Romney, Romney replied to these comments by posting on social media that, quote, fundamental to democracy is the peaceful transition of power. Without that, there is Belarus. Any suggestion that a president might not respect this constitutional guarantee is both unthinkable and unacceptable. As a high-ranking official in the U.S. State Department, which has a mission to promote democracy, who do you agree most with and why? Senator, I'm not, I'm not going to uh, parse the president's remarks. Uh, I think we're all uh, proud of American democracy. And uh, we continue in this administration, as did our predecessors, to promote the expansion of democracy around the world. Yeah, well, then, then some of you should be standing up and saying this is unacceptable and tell him that he shouldn't be talking and demeaning our democracy and demeaning the peaceful transition of power. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Udall. We'll now move to Senator Young, who I'm told is joining us online. <clears throat> Mr. Chairman? Senator Young. Yeah, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, we continue to witness 
the destabilizing effects of Iranian-backed proxies throughout the Middle East, but especially in Yemen, where the war and COVID-19 continue to ravage and decimate a people that have already endured unspeakable suffering. The Houthis continue to deflect humanitarian assistance, food deliveries, and medical assistance. And the war is so complex in Yemen with many different facets deserving blame, but Iran's role certainly can't be overlooked. From a global commerce perspective, Iran regularly threatens the Straits of Hormuz, and now through their Houthi proxies, they may be able to also gain control of the Bab al-Mandab Strait, which conducts, connects the Red Sea with the Gulf of Aden. If successful with gaining control over the key straits on both sides of the Arabian Peninsula, Iran would completely change our ability to access the region and alter how commerce is able to flow. Further, we're seeing Iran develop the Houthis into what some characterize as a Hezbollah-like entity within Yemen that could have an enduring effect and further prolong the conflict that has already inflicted unspeakable humanitarian costs. So either Ambassador Abrams or Secretary Hale, could you address what we're doing to end the conflict in Yemen? I know you had some, you spoke to this at some length in your opening remarks, but maybe you could expand on that. Yes, thank you, Senator. I think you uh, described the situation quite accurately, and you ask what we're doing about this. Uh, we have a multifaceted strategy. Uh, first, we are supporting the efforts of the UN Special Envoy, Martin Griffiths, who has been tireless in trying to seek a negotiated solution to the conflict, because ultimately we do not believe that there is a military solution. Uh, I was out in Saudi Arabia uh, late last year, uh, and I met with the Yemeni leadership, I met with the UN leadership, I met with the Saudi leadership, and uh, or encourage them to continue down that path. Uh, we're also doing our utmost to interdict uh, the weapons flows from Iran that you have cited um, and uh, encouraging our allies to do likewise and disrupt the Iranian smuggling networks that are supplying these weapons and materiel to the Houthis. Um, we're also doing our utmost to work with our partners to ensure that extremist groups are not using Yemen and its stateless areas as a safe haven from which to conduct attacks. Uh, we're trying to keep the aid moving on the, to the humanitarian needs of the Yemeni people, but the Houthis have been interfering severely with that. Uh, we're doing our best, but there have been real gaps as a result of that. Um, but we share all of the concerns that you have. Um, as I say, we're doing this, uh, deploying this multi-pronged uh, strategy in order to uh, see that our interests are protected there. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. Ambassador Abrams? The only thing I'd add, uh, Senator, is that we're also uh, clearly maintaining the level of uh, military strength in the region that we think is necessary to protect those uh, two choke points that you mentioned, the Strait of Hormuz and the Bab el Manda. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank, Thank you, you both. both. How is the administration preventing Iran from replicating the Hezbollah model in Yemen and uh, you, can, you can expand that to address um, other geographies as well. 
Well, essentially, the, the, the uh, tools that I outlined uh, in my answer a moment ago, uh, we believe that a political solution that is, imposed, that is brought to bear as rapidly as possible can prevent the transformation of the Houthis into a Hezbollah-like asset for Iran. It's certainly essential. Uh, we've seen how Hezbollah grew from a, a relatively small, if potent, uh, terrorist cell uh, to what it is today with its, uh, its arms in every direction. Uh, we definitely want to prevent that from happening. Uh, so we are doing our utmost to combat the Iranian influence. Uh, we have been encouraged that the Republic of Yemen government has reached out to the Southern Transition Council uh, and reached an agreement uh, with the South. So that is beginning to put pressure from both directions uh, on the Houthis. But there's a lot of work still ahead of us. Okay. Uh, we'll continue to monitor, monitor that. I think I have about 90 seconds left, but uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and pivot to Turkey under Secretary Hale. Many have discussed how uh, the Abraham uh, Accords might influence Israel and Arab state efforts to counter the regional influence of Iran. But what about Turkey? Um, Turkey and Iran have similar ambitions for recreating the empires that they once had and both desire to lead the Muslim world. And clearly, Turkey has is, is rapidly radicalized uh, as under Erdogan's regime. There are a lot of challenges and uh, implications for the broader region. We haven't seen any comparable actions taken by the administration to help change Turkey's trajectory. I know this is very challenging. Turkey remains a member of NATO. Are you concerned that under Erdogan's leadership, Turkey poses a greater, perhaps an even greater challenge to our security over the longer term? Well, we have a complex relationship with Turkey, um, and there are many factors in play here. Our interests in some areas overlap, our interests differ in, in other areas. So we try, to, obviously, to build on our areas of agreement and uh, try to work out our areas of disagreement. Uh, they are a NATO ally. Uh, we count on that. Uh, their geography means that they do have legitimate interests in the Middle East. That can't be ignored. Um, but it's important that they be channeled in ways in which Turkey is supporting uh, efforts to bring peace and stability, uh, particularly through multilateral formats in places like Libya um, and in Syria, support of the political process there. And so we have a very extensive dialogue with the Turks uh, to move them in that direction. So that's our objective. Okay, you, I'll, I'll follow up and, and, and uh, inquire as to what action uh, the administration may have taken within NATO to send messages to Turkey. Uh, but thank you so much, both of you, for your appearance before the committee. Thank you, Senator Young. Senator Murphy, you're up. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you to both of you for your service. Uh, I, I understand that when administration officials come before this committee or any committee, they try to put the best possible spin on the effect of their policies. Obama administration officials uh, did it. Uh, uh, we have come to expect it. But um, there are some times in which the case just doesn't pass the straight face test. And I will say this uh, argument that uh, Iran is on the run, that they have less influence in the region because of our maximum pressure campaign, um, just does not pass the straight face test. Uh, they have closer relations with the Houthis than they did 
uh, four years ago. They have closer relations with the Qataris than they did four years ago. Their proxy in Syria is closer to uh, command uh, over the majority of the country than four years ago. Uh, this narrative about Iraq is just not true. I mean, it is true that rocket attacks have increased from uh, the first half of this year to the first half of last year. And I don't know that there's any expert that would tell you that Iran has less influence in Iraq than they did at the end of the Obama administration. And so um, I think it is important for us all to be sober and realistic because you can't make good policy if you uh, don't understand the consequences of your actions. Um, that's a statement. And here are my two questions, both for you, uh, Ambassador Hale. I, I think we uh, also have an accountability crisis in the region. Part of the reason we are so weak right now uh, in and around the Middle East is because um, our, our, our allies and our adversaries um, you know, generally don't believe that there's much consequence uh, for taking action against the United States or taking action in contravention of U.S. interests. The obviously most high-profile example is the uh, dismemberment of Jamal Khashoggi. Um, uh, there were n no consequences of any um, serious nature against Saudi Arabia for that brutal murder. Um, but the region is populated with other instances uh, in which U.S. law has been violated and there seemingly has been no accountability, which is just an invitation for our so-called allies in the region to continue to treat us shabbily. Um, I think it has consequences for the next administration as well. And so, uh, Ambassador Hale, let me pose two, uh, of, um, two, two examples for you. Um, and ask for an update on whether there has been any accountability. The first is in UAE. We've talked about the uh, potential pending sale. I've asked this question several times, but uh, UAE admitted um, about a year and a half ago to taking U.S. weapons and transferring them to very dangerous Salafist militias uh, that have uh, interests on the ground in Yemen. Um, this wasn't just reported. Uh, this was admitted to by UAE. And for a year and a half, uh, this committee has been told that it has been under investigation. And so my question is, what specific steps have been taken to hold UAE accountable for the illegal transfer of U.S. weapons to militia groups uh, on the ground in the region? And second, in Egypt, on July 13th, American citizen Mustafa Qasim died in an Egyptian prison. His death was entirely preventable. He had submitted the paperwork to renounce his citizenship so that he could be released to the United States. Um, on February 26th, Assistant Secretary Shanker said that the State Department's deliberations about what actions to take in consequence uh, were a work in progress. Uh, and so let me ask you, um, can you provide us an update? Has there been any public action and I think public action is important because if you don't, if the world doesn't see us um, engaging in accountability, uh, then it's hard for it to have an effect. Has there been any public accountability measures taken for the transfer of weapons in UAE uh, or the killing of Mustafa Qasim in an Egyptian prison? I'd be happy to get you a full answer in writing to your two questions. What I have to say this morning is that we have had very serious conversations with both of those governments about those act activities. In the case of the Emirates, I'm confident that the Emiratis understand exactly what is permitted and what is not, uh, and how serious 
uh, these allegations are about what happened and that there can be nothing like that again uh, because it's jeopardizing our ability to meet their legitimate security needs. In the case of Egypt, again, we have a confidential dialogue with the Egyptians. Uh, I emphasize confidential because I think we're more likely to get results uh, in terms of protecting American citizens, uh, relatives of American citizens who are subject to arbitrary arrest and detention uh, and other forms of uh, mistreatment there. And we have had some success in getting them released. Uh, but we will continue to have those conversations with the Egyptians and to spell out how unacceptable uh, this kind of abusive behavior is. Mr. Chairman, Mr. Chairman, the, the, the Saudis, as a consequence of killing Jamal Khashoggi, got a smiling photo op with Secretary Pompeo. Uh, apparently, from what we are hearing today, the Emiratis and the Egyptians have gotten stern private conversations. Um, that is not a recipe uh, to send a message to the rest of the region and the world uh, to obey U.S. law and to treat U.S. citizens well and to act in accordance with our interests. Uh, I think this is part and parcel of the reason why America is getting very little from our allies. Our interests are not advancing in the region because nobody believes they will be held accountable uh, if, they, uh, if their policies run cross-current to the United States. Senator Cruz. You know, I've got to say, I just heard the comments from my friend from Connecticut, and it's almost like we're living in parallel worlds. To say we're not getting anything significant in our ally, from our allies just rewrites history. I had the great joy of being at the White House last week for an historic peace deal, where for the first time in three decades, an Arab country normalized relationships with Israel, the UAE did so, and within a matter of weeks thereafter, Bahrain did so. Both of those were major diplomatic advances. They hadn't happened for decades, and the Saudis, whom the senator from Connecticut just cast aspersions at them, played a major role in brokering Middle East peace, including for the first time as allowing Israeli planes to overfly Saudi airspace. So I understand that we're 41 days out from an election, and so everything has to be bad in foreign policy if your opponent is the incumbent. But I do think this committee deserves some acknowledgement and recognition of the historic events that are playing out right now events that have made our allies safer, events that have made the Middle East safer, and events that have made America safer. Uh, Mr. Abrams, you're a longtime expert on the region. What are your thoughts on the historic peace deal that was just brokered uh, by the President? <clears throat> I'm reminded, Senator, of the uh, many people who said that this could not happen without an Israeli-Palestinian peace agreement. But uh, the administration thought that it would work in the other direction, that the first thing to try to do was to normalize relations between Israel and a number of Arab states, and then that might have an influence on uh, Palestinian conduct and prove to be correct. Well, and I'll tell you, it really proved right some conversations we had in 2017 and the first year 
of the Trump administration. As you know, there were vigorous debates within the administration on a number of foreign policy questions. One question was whether or not to move our embassy in Israel to Jerusalem. Uh, the department where you work today, the State Department, opposed moving the embassy. The Defense Department opposed moving the embassy. I engaged vigorously in those debates directly with the President. The argument that State and Defense made and the argument that some in the White House made is that moving the embassy to Jerusalem would enrage the enemies of Israel, it would enrage the enemies of America, and it would make peace in the Middle East harder to achieve. In my view, that was precisely backwards, that the reason peace has been so difficult to achieve, in part, has been the consistent ambiguity of U.S. policy, the wringing of hands where the enemies of America and the enemies of Israel did not know where we stand. And what I urge the president is moving the embassy will be heard crystal clear across the globe by America's friends and by America's enemies that America stands resolutely and unshakably alongside our friend, the state of Israel. I was there in Jerusalem the day the embassy opened, a time of celebration and dancing in the streets. And I do not believe it was coincidental that within a week of the embassy opening, the administration announced what I think is the single most important foreign policy decision of the last four years which is withdrawing from the catastrophic Obama-Iran nuclear deal. Both of those together, in my judgment, were the essential preconditions for the historic peace deal that, that rolled out within the last couple of weeks. That clarity, I can tell you in the last couple of weeks, I've had conversations directly with the ambassador from the UAE and the ambassador from Saudi Arabia, both of them, told me, said, the reason we are cutting this deal is because we want to be friends with America. We want to be closer friends with you, and we know you care that we make nice with Israel, so we're willing to do that because we want a closer friendship and alliance with the United States. I think that is an incredible victory for clarity in foreign policy and is something worth learning from celebrating, and emulating going forward. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Cruz. Uh, well said. Uh, there's obviously two different views on this, and it's unfortunate that the, uh, that the uh, political conditions in the country today get us there. This, this situation with Iran is serious. Uh, we obviously have differences with uh, our allies on it. They're very squishy on it. We've all talked to them, uh, but uh, it's, uh, it's got to be dealt with. Senator Kane, no doubt you have strong feelings on the matter. I, I do, Mr. Chair, but I don't like the suggestion that strong feelings and differences of opinion are just because of the political situation. Can there not be an intellectually respectable ground for difference of opinion that doesn't just, just get cast aside as you know being politically yeah, motivated? There, there can be, but and, and, well, let, let I, me I think jump it'd in. be. Go ahead. Let, let me jump in because I want to pay a compliment. I, I'm, I'm very willing to be critical when it's warranted, and I've got some critical things to say, too. But I also feel like, to be fair-minded, I should pay a compliment. And my top thing I wanted to say this morning was congratulations on the, the normalization of relations between Israel, UAE, Bahrain. I think this is a big, positive accomplishment. I tweeted out immediately when I heard it. 
that it was a positive for Israel, that it was a positive for the U.S. I gave the Trump administration praise for their work in this. I think a lot of people should get praise. I think the Trump administration should. And, and I hope you'll take that back to the Secretary of State and, and the White House. Um, I think Israeli leadership sh should. Um, I think the ambassador to the UAE, Yusuf El-Otaiba, wrote a very powerful editorial in an Israeli paper, which was quite unusual, basically saying, we're on a path toward normalization. Please don't annex territories on the West Bank. If you do that, you'll blow up the opportunity for normalization. If you will not do that, we can open up a path to normalization. And so I give uh, Yusuf El-Otaiba and, and other leaders of these nations credit for being willing to put a bold proposal on the table, but also to ask something of Israel in exchange. I also give members of the Senate credit in this. When the new Israeli government was formed, Bibi Netanyahu and Benny Gantz put out a public statement saying that they were going to annex territories beginning on July 2, quote, with American support. They made that public. We're going to do this with American support. Many of us in this body looked at that language and said, if you're going to say publicly you're doing annexation with American support, then we're going to publicly say, please don't do this. We had a letter that about a quarter of the Senate signed to Israel saying we would view this as catastrophic to peace prospects. We would view it as violation of U.S. policy. We would view it potentially as a violation of international law, destabilizing in the region. And I think the Israeli leadership looked at all of these things. Here's a path to peace and normalization. Here's a path that could lead to strained relationships in the region and potentially strained relationships in the United States. And they did a calculation that I think was the right calculation for peace in the region and for their own security, which is to enter into this deal. So I have no trouble saying thank you and congratulations to this administration and to the Israelis and to UAE and the other nations and also say to my Senate colleagues who firmly stood up for the need for peace dialogue and against unilateral action by the Israelis in an annexation, these stars aligned and produced something positive. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. I do associate myself with comments by folks on this side of the aisle, and I don't think they're political. I, I, I believe them earnestly and sincerely that the policy with respect to Iran has been a disaster because there's not a single thing we couldn't have done, this administration couldn't have done, had they kept the Iran deal and pocketed it and enforced the hell out of it, and then also utilized the fact that the JCPOA was only a narrow deal dealing with the nuclear portfolio that didn't forbid the U.S. from engaging or imposing sanctions for ballistic missiles or sanctions for bellicose activity in the region, in Yemen or Bahrain or anywhere else. We had a huge suite of tools we could use against Iran. There's not a single thing this administration has done to put pressure on Iran that we couldn't have done while pocketing the gains of that deal and imposing pressure on Iran to comply with it. And had we done that, we wouldn't have been at odds with our allies. Had we done that, it would have been easier to find a nuclear deal with North Korea. As soon as the U.S. decided to blow up a deal that everybody said was being complied with, North Korea looked at our desire to find a nuclear deal and basically said, hold on a second. If we're going to do a deal and the U.S. will just gladly walk out of it, even if it's being complied with, it, imme it, it immediately made it much more difficult. So I, um, I will associate myself with a lot of what Senator Cruz said on the first part of this, that this, this, these uh, normalizations were 
very, very significant accomplishments. I agree with that. Uh, but I have to completely disagree with respect to Iran. I hope you'll keep pressure on Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia has people in jail or under trial who are Virginia residents. Jamal Khashoggi was a Virginia resident. There's been no accountability, and the president is bragging that he basically got Congress to back, back off and, and allow impunity for MBS. There, uh, Aziz al-Yusef and other Virginians who have been in prison for women's rights activism in Saudi Arabia are under trial for it. We have to keep the pressure on for them. As, as, as Secretary Hill, you know the situation so well. I've seen you more in the Middle East than I've seen you in the United States. I mean, you know this situation so well. We have to keep the pressure on Saudi Arabia to advance human rights and not be one of the most egregious violators of human rights in the world. And I have confidence that to the extent you can, given the fact that the president wants to save MBS's ass, as he said, I'm using his words, to the extent that you can, I'm confident that you will. And with that, Mr. Chair, I yield back to you. Thank you, Senator Keene. You discharge yourself well when you compliment the administration for their success. Uh, we, uh, we appreciate that. Um, and I agree with you that uh, we should have the ability to have a, um, your, your colleagues aren't, uh, are, are amused by the fact, I guess, that, uh, that you've complimented the administration on their success. But in, in any event, uh, the, uh, you're, you're right, that we should have uh, a uh, legitimate uh, discussion about Iran. And one would sit around listening to this with the Republicans on one side and the Democrats on the other as if it's somebody in this room's fault. I think we all need to agree all of this is the result of Iran's malign conduct. And I, I agree with you that the, it would be really nice to sit down and make an agreement. The problem is, and, and I, I, one thing I disagree with you strongly on, is that, well, we should have stayed in the agreement and then enforced the heck out of it and everything would be all right. This is a country that's killing American men and women. You, you can't do business like that. And, and on the one hand, with your left hand be, be negotiating with them about uh, doing good things, and on the other hand, letting them get away with the most malign activity that, uh, that's possible. So uh, again, I, I appreciate your view on this, but we, we, be, we ought to all start from the proposition that the problem here is Iran. It is not the Republicans or the Democrats or either one's policy towards Iran. It's Iran that's the problem, and we're all Americans, and we're all uh, of the frame of mind that these people have got to be contained from their malign activities. So uh, it's unfortunate we, we do have this division over this, but in any event. Mr. Chair, I, if I could, I'm not going to take long, but hey, please. We've had this discussion before. You and I have had personally. And, and, and we've had it personally, we had it in the committee. And there's so much we can say about all that Iran has done bad, but you always have to look at the way they look at us. And I've, I've had that conversation before, and that doesn't mean that they're right. That doesn't mean that we have to take their side of, side of it. But you know that I know some things that I'm not at liberty to discuss right here. So you assert that is Iran, has Iran killed Americans? The answer to that is yes. There are some things that I would like to say to complete the picture that I'm not able to say at a hearing like this. Um, the only way to build out of historic distrust and there's a deep historic distrust between the United States and Iran that goes back to the US and the UK deposing a democratically elected government of Iran in the 1950s. 
And then the things that Iran has done to us, the embassy, the taking American hostages at the embassy in 1979. This has been a back and forth for five or six decades. How do you get out of distrust? Because I think we would all agree it would be a good thing for the world if we could. Maybe it's impossible, but if we could get out of it, how do we get out of it? And the answer is a tiny step at a time, not overnight. No, no, not overnight. A tiny step at a time. Um, and, and that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for acknowledging all of the bad that you point out, but trying to figure out the tiny steps at a time that can lead us into a better place. Uh, and I, I happen to believe that that's possible. There are some who believe it's impossible. I happen to believe it's possible. You know, that maybe that's just me. But we'll, I know we'll continue to have this discussion. And I, I agree with that, Senator Kane. And I, and I, I agree with you. I think it, it is uh, uh, baby steps at a time. But you, you know, the fact that we were historical enemies, I mean, you, you look back at, look what happened with Germany and Japan, two of our closest allies right now. And, and the atrocities, uh, the atrocities, uh, uh, that they committed were, were just awful, but they stopped. And uh, that, that is a difference. Uh, uh, the, what I always come back to with Iran is the, uh, one of the, the great hopes is the demographics of that country, the significant uh, population of young people in that country who don't buy onto uh, what, where, the, where the administration's been taken. So th this is a conversation we, we do need to continue, but we gotta always remember, we're all on the same side of this. Now, how we get to where we wanna go, we may have differences on, but we need to respect and, uh, and thank you so much, Senator King. We have Senator uh, Merkley, who is on the online. And Senator Merkley, the floor is yours. Hello, greetings. Uh, can you hear me now? We can hear you. Uh, thank you very much. I wanted to start with a, a question for uh, David Hale. And uh, this goes, and I apologize if you've already addressed this in this uh, gathering, because I was uh, late, late to be able to tune in due to another commitment. Um, but the, the question is this, in our context of our relationship with Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia uh, has shown interest in developing a nuclear cycle. The Wall Street Journal noted in August of this year that they had built a facility they had not disclosed to the world to um, extract yellow cake from uranium ore, essentially the front end of a nuclear cycle. And the conversations we've had with Saudi Arabia have not produced a, a commitment uh, in the context of the future development of nuclear weapons. Obviously, this is relevant to the conversation we're having about Iran because you have the two major powers of the Sunni world and the Shiite world who watch each other very carefully and are very concerned about what the other, other uh, power within that uh, Muslim uh, spectrum does. And so um, uh, bring us up to date on how forcefully how determined is the administration to insist on the gold standard uh, for nuclear power in Saudi Arabia? The gold standard being the standard that says a country agrees to forego uranium enrichment and plutonium reprocessing to basically not build the infrastructure as a foundation for the development of, of nuclear weapons. 
Well, thank you, Senator. And we certainly share the concern that you've uh, addressed. Uh, our nonproliferation goals are global and regional and uh, universal in their nature. Um, and we agree that there has to be a commitment to a gold standard that you've described. I would say, though, that the most effective way in order to prevent those uh, hypothetical scenarios from unfolding is to make sure that Saudi Arabia uh, knows that we together are partners in defense of their security and that we are addressing their legitimate security needs. And this goes to issues that Elliot Abrams deals with on a daily basis. I think he's covered them uh, pretty fully uh, during the session this morning, but since you were absent, I might turn the microphone to him. But it's all about Iran and making sure that Iran does not pose a nuclear threat or other forms of threats to, uh, of an existential nature to our Saudi uh, partners. Elliot, would you like to expand? Uh, only to say that <clears throat> we do hope for <clears throat> the ability to negotiate what we would view as a <clears throat> comprehensive deal that would include a nuclear aspect <clears throat> that would really, <clears throat> pardon me, would really prevent Iran from moving toward a nuclear weapon, something that we don't believe the JCPOA actually did. Well, I must say that uh, the, the agreement did require Iran to forego its uh, planned plutonium reactor and dismantle it. It did require them to forego enrichment. It did require them to forego R&D on advanced centrifuges. It did require them to dilute an existing stock of, uh, of uh, enriched uranium. It did require them to move things out of the country. And so there were a whole series of provisions. Well, while not eternal and not perfect and subject to future negotiation, certainly pre were very substantial, real on the ground changes. Uh, as uh, Secretary Pompeo uh, has uh, said to me, well, we didn't need the agreement because Iran had no intention of building a nuclear weapon. And he noted that the, there was no foundation um, in terms of our intelligence that suggested that they had made that decision uh, to build a nuclear weapon since going back to 2003. Well, fine, but still, we don't like the idea of the nuclear cycle producing the capability to do so. And that's what was dismantled in that agreement. And you said, Mr. Hale, uh, and I think I can quote you, uh, what you just said is, we will insist on the gold standard. That has not been the position of this administration. Are you saying now this administration's position is we will insist in our relationship with Saudi Arabia on the gold standard? Well, I don't want to contradict statements that have been made by others, so I'll have to, I'll have to get back to you uh, on that if you discern any difference of opinion. But uh, as I said, we have a global policy. It's regional and it's universal, and we do not want to see uh, the, this kind of proliferation occurring, and we are having serious, and always have serious conversations anytime any country appears to be going in that direction. Um, but again, I think that the real focus has to be on making sure that there's an environment in the Gulf in which the Saudis do not feel that this path is one that they have to go down in order to defend their country. Well, so interesting you would say that because the Saudis didn't feel they had to because we had an agreement that prevented Iran from doing it, but now we've dismantled that agreement. And now they're starting to build their nuclear cycle. And I'm asking you, are you confronting Saudi Arabia and telling them not to complete this facility for extracting yellow cake from uranium ore as the first stage or the front end of a nuclear cycle? 
Are you telling them that for our relationship to be on solid ground, they cannot bypass that gold standard and that if they do, it completely undermines our credibility in getting Iran to bypass having that nuclear infrastructure. I'd really prefer to, to have this conversation with you in a, in a different setting rather than this public one, but I can assure you that I'll be available or make the appropriate people at the State Department available to you to, to continue this, this conversation, if I may. I think that's okay, great. Well, I must, must say that I think it would be very valuable for the administration to be very publicly committed uh, to um, the, that vision of Saudi Arabia not pursuing this and to use some of the leverage that this administration has built up with Saudi Arabia, built up in ways that uh, I might have strongly disagreed with in terms of the response to the assassination of an American resident. Uh, but if you have that leverage, it makes sense to use it and use it in a very public way. And uh, right now, whatever polite conversations you might have in passing in private are having no impact. So perhaps worth rethinking the approach. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Markey. We'll go to Senator Markey, I'm told it's online. Senator Markey, are you with us? Hello. Hello, who? Hello, yeah, <laughs> Mr. Chairman. Senator Markey, welcome. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, so much. Um, may, may I ask uh, our witnesses about uh, Saudi Arabia and uh, its efforts to develop its own indigenous um, uh, nuclear materials program and uh, to, to have a missile uh, program as well, which clearly would be an enormously destabilizing um, element into the Middle East. So, uh, if I if I may, could, would uh, would uh, one uh, one or uh, uh, both of you answer the question about uh, about who, uh, which uh, other countries, especially China, is providing materials to Saudi Arabia uh, in order to develop uh, an indigenous capacity within their country? Senator, with, with much respect, I'm not prepared in this public setting to, um, to offer that kind of information, but I'm absolutely committed to answering all of your questions in a classified setting. I said, why are you not prepared to answer this, this fundamental national security question in public? What, what would be the, um, the reason why you would not be willing to do that? Because I'm concerned about the level of classification of the information. My question is, why is it classified? In other words, if China is helping Saudi Arabia right now, the American people have a right to know that, especially uh, a month before a presidential election. So wh why would that not be something that the American people um, uh, should know, that there is a potential nuclear weapons program inside of Saudi Arabia that is being built right now. I, I have, can you give me the reason why? You're saying it's classified. I would ask you, why is it classified? Uh, any information that I've seen about this topic has been classified, and therefore I can't really share it here in this room. But I'm absolutely prepared uh, to coming to you 
uh, with the right people to answer any questions that you may have related to this uh, set of issues. Right. All right. Well, tell me this then. What what uh, limits would the administration place upon a potential uh, uh, one, two, three agreement with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, particularly uh, as press reports indicate they are progressing in other areas uh, of their nuclear fuel cycle and ballistic missile technology? I don't have the capacity to answer the question. It's somewhat hypothetical, and it's not my field of expertise. Um, I, I'm not trying to sidestep it. I just don't have answers for you. Well, uh, we're having a briefing on the Middle East, and I don't think there's anything more volatile than whether or not Saudi Arabia is trying to develop a nuclear weapons technology. Uh, do you believe we should trust uh, Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman when he stated in 2018 that if Iran developed a nuclear bomb, we will follow suit as soon as possible. Um, should we trust um, Ben Salman not to be developing it right now? Well, that goes to the point I've tried to make several times, which is the most effective means to prevent this kind of proliferation um, and uh, destabilizing activity would be to make sure that we are addressing the threats that Saudi Arabia faces and providing it with the means of self-defense. Right. Well, uh, ultimately, though, we, we, we wind up uh, uh, fueling it if we don't guarantee that Saudi Arabia understands that we're going to abide by a gold standard, which is why uh, Senator Rubio and I uh, introduced the Saudi Nuclear Nonproliferation Act that requires Congress to affirmatively approve uh, any one, two, three agreement with Saudi Arabia and would hold them to the gold standard, requiring them to commit to forego any uranium enrichment or spent fuel reprocessing. Uh, I think that we should take a very serious pause before handing the Saudis or anyone else the tools with which to make a nuclear weapon and potentially kick off a nuclear arms race in the region. Is the goal of the Trump administration to negotiate a gold standard with Saudi Arabia? Is that your, uh, is that the objective which the Trump administration has? Our focus right now is on what I've said, which is dealing with the threat posed by Iran. Uh, Elliot Abrams has gone in great detail over how we're dealing with that uh, and making sure that Saudi Arabia has a means of self-defense. Uh, I'm not here today to talk about one, two, three agreements. Uh, or the nuclear program, I would be very happy to address this, as I've said, uh, in a classified setting um, at your convenience. Well, again, this just goes back to whether or not the Iran deal was being violated uh, by Iran, the Iran nuclear deal. It was not. Uh, it was under uh, safeguards. The IAEA was in there. Right now, we know that there has been uh, no breakout that actually uh, brings uh, Iran meaningfully meaningfully closer to a nuclear weapons uh, program. So in that context, uh, the Saudi breakout um, uh, is on the Trump watch. Uh, and it is something that, of course, you won't testify to. You won't give us the information in terms of what's going on with any relations with China or other countries. Uh, but that in and of itself, uh, is an indication that the uh, Trump administration uh, is actually leading to a fueling of the nuclear arms race in the Middle East uh, rather than 
uh, trying to uh, douse those flames. Uh, and so from my perspective, I'm looking forward to getting the briefing on what's going on in Saudi Arabia. Uh, I would like to do so as soon as is possible, uh, but I believe something uh, very significant historically is right now unfolding uh, in the Middle East, in Saudi Arabia. Uh, and the last thing we need is an all-out nuclear arms race in that region. And I'm afraid the Trump administration policies are pointing us in that direction. Thank you, Senator. Um, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Uh, do we have any other members online that have joined us? If, if not, uh, I want to thank Senator Menendez. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Let, let me briefly first say I was chuckling when you said the Senator Kane acquitted himself well because you said he'd only acquitted himself well while he was praising the administration. I think Senator Kane was acquitting himself well in his totality of his presentation, so that's why I was chuckling. And, and I would just note for the record that uh, several members of this committee on both sides of the aisle, including myself, uh, have a resolution recognizing uh, the uh, historic and important significance of the UAE-Bahrain uh, agreement. So it's not that we're uh, not prone because it's election time not to recognize that which is, but as someone who's been working on Iran since I was in the House of Representatives when no one was paying attention to Iran, uh, and I would say, well, why are you not paying attention to Iran, a country that has huge oil and natural gas reserves uh, and is seeking nuclear power for what? not because it needs it for nuclear domestic energy, but for its design for nuclear weapons. I, I've called it as I've seen it, including in the last administration when I had strong disagreements. But that's not going to stop me now from having, when I believe, strong disagreements with this administration. So let me turn to a couple of questions I have in that regard. Um, uh, Special Representative Abrams, uh, and maybe you can just give me a couple of quick yes or no's on these. Do you agree that over the past two years, Iran has moved closer to developing a nuclear weapon? I would say uh, they have moved a little bit closer okay. in the sense that they've got uh, more fissile material. As, no, that's what I was going to get to. Has Iran increased its stockpile of low enriched uranium? Yes. Has it increased its enrichment capacity? Yes. Okay. So is Iran's breakdown time, meaning the time Iran needs to produce enough weapon-grade uranium for a nuclear weapon, significantly shorter than it was in 2018? I don't know if I'd say it was significantly shorter. Is it shorter? Uh, in principle, it has to be shorter. Yeah. So. So those are all critical elements of when we're considering how uh, Iran is doing vis-a-vis uh, -vis our policy in terms of achieving the ultimate goal. Let me turn to uh, Secretary Hale. I know we've been calling you ambassador, which you will have for life, but right now you are the secretary, so you deserve that title. Uh, I want to pick off on Senator Young's comments about Turkey and your response. Uh, when Turkey uh, ultimately uh, intercedes in the internationally recognized territorial waters of the Republic of Cyprus, a member of the European Union. Is it promoting peace and stability in the region? Uh, we've called that out. Uh, we've definitely have, uh, are seeking to de-escalate the situation in the Eastern Mediterranean, working with the French and others. Secretary of State was uh, in Cyprus recently. 
Um, so we are working, it is very problematic and we're working to de-escalate. Yeah. And, and the only person who's, inter the only country who's interceding in their international waters is Turkey. I mean, I, I love how we call on both sides. Well, one side's not doing anything. Same thing in Greece. Is Turkey promoting peace and stability when it intercedes in the territorial waters? Uh, I, no, I didn't mean to suggest we're calling on all sides. You know, the, what Turkey's doing is problematic, and we are trying to spring about de-escalation. Same thing in Greece. Is that not true? Yes, that's correct. And, and when Turkey seeks to have Halkbank not be sanctioned under U.S. law, uh, that's not promoting the national interests of the United States under U.S. law? No. Uh, and when Turkey is supporting the uh, side in Yemen, which we totally do not recognize, it's not creating peace and stability. So uh, I appreciate our aspirations of what Turkey was, but it is not the it is not the realities under under um, uh, under er Erdogan. And I think on that, the, the chairman and I would agree. <coughs> Let me ask you uh, two final quick questions. Um, in the wake of the devastating explosion in Beirut, I was pleased that the chairman and I introduced a bipartisan resolution in support of U.S. relief efforts and continued engagement with the Lebanese people and the international community to hold those responsible accountable. Um, what more can the U.S. do to support those voices and actors in Lebanon who have proven to be good interlocutors? Well, we meet with them, which is important because it demonstrates that um, they have a legitimate voice in the country and we encourage them. We have trained many of their uh, cadres on how to organize as NGOs. So there's a lot going on at the grassroots level. Now, we also engage the elite leadership of the country, many of whom are under uh, are feeling on, on the defensive um, and finding out what they're planning to do to turn the situation around. Um, I'm struck, frankly, during my visit there by how much Hezbollah is also suffering as a consequence of this. They are caught up in the same uh, pool of people uh, on the public level demanding that Hezbollah as well uh, disarm, that they stop the, their own corrupt practices. They're at the center of this uh, problem. Uh, and we've, we strongly uh, endorse that view as well. Um, we think that continued focus on reform is the right way. And you know, when I went out and met with some of the demonstrators and activists, they shouted to me, no bailout. Do not bail out this government. And I said, we agree. Um, we will provide humanitarian relief. We thank you for your support here in, in the Senate for that. But we have to be tough and make sure that our broader assistance is conditional on fundamental change. You know, I hope we can continue to make sure that our assistance goes to supporting and empowering people working on behalf of all the Lebanese people. And finally, I know that you're familiar with the U.S.-Sudan Claims Agreement and the legislation that the State Department is asking Congress to pass to implement that international agreement. Let me be clear, Sudan is at a very fragile moment, and I have consistently indicated for more than a year that the administration should do much more to support the fledgling democracy than it has done. I support a Sudan Claims Deal. But I also believe this deal falls short. And I, I have some questions about how the administration, whether or not it has a commitment to make it better. The legislation the State Department is seeking refers to, quote, fairness for U.S. victims. But is it fair that the State Department left 9-11 families completely out in the cold in the Sudan negotiations? 
Is it fair that you intentionally excluded their claims from the Sudan deal? You conveniently did not share that fact with Congress. And then you pushed Congress to pass legislation that would have completely terminated all 9-11 claims against Sudan. So I want to hear from you. That doesn't strike me as a fair deal. It's a slap in the face to our fellow citizens who lost loved ones in 9-11. So speak to me about this concept of fairness that you seem to have, not you personally, but the State Department. Well, the the agreement uh, addresses the existing claims from victims of the coal bombing and the uh, embassy bombings that occurred in East Africa. Uh, those claims are long-standing. They have been through the court system, and um, we believe that this deal offers a fair basis, as do the victims themselves who have essentially accepted the deal. Um, subsequent to all this, uh, there was the introduction of the possibility of 9-11 claimants, and during the last round of negotiations on the uh, continuing resolution, the administration did send a letter up to the Hill, uh, and we, we were prepared to offer uh, compromises that would have, uh, I, we think, provided a high level of protection for the, any future claims of 9-11 victims against Sudan that, were, that achieved um, uh, status in, in a U.S. court. Um, I'd be happy to, I don't have the specifics in front of me, it's very legalistic language. I'd be happy to get that to you right away this it's morning. Very, it is very legalistic and I'm familiar with it. Let me just say, I, I will oppose uh, any Sudan legislation that fails to preserve and protect the 9-11 claims to make sure that 9-11 families are not stomped upon by the administration. And I hope the State Department will reluctantly come along. Um, I, I have not seen the tax, Congress has not seen the texts of the U.S.-Sudan agreement. Uh, can you commit to sharing the text of the agreement with Congress uh, by the end of the week? Well, we sent a letter that described the nature of the agreement. I will go back to our legal advisor's office. I don't know that we have final, in fact, I'm confident we've not finalized the agreement itself. So we don't have anything yet to share, but we did describe in some detail uh, the, the essential elements of the agreement. Well, you can't ask Congress, Mr. Secretary, uh, you know, it's like playing games here. You can't ask Congress to pass implementing legislation for an international agreement basically asking us to sign on the dotted line, let you, yet you won't let us see the agreement. That's absurd. So I'm not going to sign on to something that I can't even see. So until we get to that point, count me out. And I think uh, we may bring others along with us. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Chairman, if I Thank could just you. jump in for one second. Uh, just to respond to uh, something that Senator Menendez said, in, of course, correctly <clears throat> reminding us of your own comments about the Iranian nuclear program decades ago. Those uh, comments, those judgments are uh, still exactly correct. They're still behaving like a country that's looking for a nuclear weapon and has something to hide, even in 2020. You know, the IAEA asked for access to two sites in January. It took seven months to get access to one site. The IAEA has reported this year that it visited three sites that were clearly sanitized. We have the archive discovered by the Israelis that shows that they kept intact everything they had done on the development of a nuclear weapon and the team that had done it under the same leadership. So that same problem does exist now decades later. We don't disagree. 
Thank you, and let me also uh, confirm that uh, the uh, ranking member's view on Turkey and my view are absolutely congruent. So with that, Senator Kane, um, we promised a hard stop at 11 o'clock. We got a couple of minutes. Uh, we, I, I will honor that. Um, the chairman has one of the best, uh, like, look over his glasses, eye rolls when you try to do a second round. But thank goodness I'm sitting so far away from you in social distancing that I couldn't read that cue. I'm going to be quick. I, it, uh, Secretary Hale, you are really an expert on Lebanon. And there have been questions about the, the current situation in Lebanon, and I've appreciated your answers, Senator Romney, Senator Menendez, Senator Shaheen. But I'm sort of looking down the road. I, I really, really worry about Lebanon. I think it's an incredibly important country. I think the U.S. Lebanese relationship, especially in military affairs, has been a positive one. Um, but I think it's on the verge of failed state status, and many Lebanese Americans believe that. Many people that I talk to in Lebanon believe that. I, I sometimes worry a little bit that we are, in our alliance with Israel, we're so worried about Iran that we don't talk enough about Lebanon, although there's obviously the connection because of Iranian support for Hezbollah. But but you want to see reform. You mentioned that. We have to see reform. We have to use our aid to promote reform. But as somebody who is a real expert on Lebanon because of positions both in Beirut and at, in the State Department, you know, what, what is a, a reasonably optimistic, not an unreasonably optimistic, but what's a reasonably optimistic sort of path forward in Lebanon that, that you think could occur? And what can the United States do to facilitate a reasonably optimistic path forward for that country? The country's basically out of gas. I mean, prior to the explosion, they had a deep financial and economic crisis already. They have a burden of a quarter of their population are refugees today, um, and COVID-19 has struck them heavily. Um, and then they have a completely dysfunctional form of government that Hezbollah, the center of, exploits fully to their own advantage. This is the set of problems that we have. Now, one of the strategies that I think is important to bear in mind is that Hezbollah is in that position largely because of their monopoly of arms, so that's why we're supporting the army, but also because they can call upon non-Shia allies uh, in government to at least get a parliamentary majority. And given the mood of anger that I detected anyway, I think that uh, for elections were held soon, uh, there could be potentially very different results um, that would shift toward uh, more reform-minded and moderate forces in Lebanon. So I think that's an important goal. Um, the French president is very active in trying to bring together uh, agreement on a government. I think that the standard that we will apply to that government is, is it able to begin this reform process? And we're not unrealistic. We realize that they can't take on everything. But there are a few simple things that they can do. For example, in rebuilding the port, are they going to make sure that it is transparent and that Hezbollah and other factions do not have unfettered access to do whatever they want in that port. Uh, is customs going to stop being a source of illicit revenue for whoever can get their hands on it? That's a very simple and straightforward thing. With all eyes focused on the port, they ought to be able to do that. And then they need to be looking at the central bank, making sure that it's meeting the gold standard there, the central bank, and looking at banking reforms, which is the cornerstone of the Lebanese economy. But None of this gets to the, the core problem, which is Hezbollah's distortion of Lebanon. And we have got to do more there. The maximum pressure campaign on Iran is very much part of that. And we've deprived Hezbollah a lot of, of a lot of resources. Um, but we want to boost our allies so that they can be a counterforce against Hezbollah. That's, that's our strategy in Lebanon. 
Yeah, thank you, Senator Keene. Very valid questions and a very worrisome uh, situation, and uh, thanks for bringing that up. Uh, with that, I want to thank both of our, our witnesses. You've been very generous with us today for the uh, information of the members of the committee. The record will remain open until the close of business on Friday. We'd ask uh, the witnesses to promptly respond to any questions. With that, uh, we are adjourned.